Boom, episode 87 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, Teddy Flower. It's me, CLB. And this week we're joined by... Stephen Travers. Stephen, how's things? How are you? Uh, very good, thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for coming in to us. Awesome, it's, it's, it's my privilege. I mean, it's a whole new audience for me. Yeah, yeah. When Stephen came in, he said, oh, we usually go to floor three and we had to tell Stephen, we're not even allowed down there. Yeah. <laughs> Only suits down there. Do you have a barrier down there? A bloke just saying, no. Not them too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like bounce on regulars only. Yeah, it's Sorry. one of them. Pat Kenny and all down there. We, yeah. We're not allowed to associate with all of them. Okay. But, yeah. how and ever, we're going to jump into the singer, Stephen, yeah? Yeah. Do you know where the singer is? Well, I, I listen to a few of your podcasts and, um, yeah, I think I know what a zinger is. It's kind of an, an either or. Is yeah, it? yeah, that that is what it is. Mm-hmm. So the zingers from the previous week, Stephen. Yeah, they're very controversial, Stephen. Do you okay. not ask the family about them? You be okay killing each other on the house. I know we call it this, or we call it that, or Second World War, ba- Third World War. Yeah, basically, <laughs> the, these ones are easy ones, anyways. Okay. Do you prefer ice cream or ice pops? Ice cream. This was controversial, wasn't it? There was mm-hmm. more of Calvin. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Do you know Twisters? You know a Tangle Twister? Twister. A Tangle Twister. You know the green and white ones? Oh, like an ice pop type thing. So what would you call that, an ice cream or an ice pop? Oh, an ice pop. Yeah, it's an ice pop. That's what I said, and people were saying to me, no, it's ice cream. No, you said it's an ice cream. No, I said it was an ice pop. I said anything with a stick in it is an ice pop. Did you? Yeah. I thought you were saying that's a nice cream. No, and you were shouting at me over it. I was like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a nice pop at Depna. Yeah. But you'd prefer ice cream over ice pops? Yeah, um, uh, actually I bought, uh, I think it's called a 99, is it? Yeah. yeah. I bought a 99 recently. It was the biggest one I've ever seen and uh, I loved it, yeah. Do you know, I don't think enough shops do 99s anymore. I, I remember growing up, you go into any shop and you could get a 99. Remember they used to have like the machines? Yeah. <clears throat> and now you can't get them anywhere. Out in Hout. Well, you that's like that makes everywhere. sense. Hout, Dunleary, the yeah. likes of that. But like, I think more local shops need to start doing them. Like a local spar and centre, you should be able to go and just get ninety nine. Yeah, but you can't do it anymore. You can't beat them. Yeah, sprinkles. Well, yeah, syrup all over. And a flake. And yeah. a flake. Yeah. Yeah, and an extra flake for fifty cent. Yeah. Top of the ranch. Yeah, but you can't get them anywhere. So no, we settle for ice pops, um, tangle twisters, and yeah. brunches and stuff. Well, the girl asked me if uh, what I wanted on it. <coughs> Excuse me, I have hay fever. But um, and and she gave me a list of stuff, sprinkles and I don't know hundreds and thousands or whatever you call them and all of these things. I went for um, I went for blueberry syrup or something. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, tops. Yeah. I'd have just tell them to throw all everything, the syrup yeah. on it. Every all sauce, yeah. every colour, yeah. yeah, everything you have, and then the thing just runs into your fingers and you have sticky yeah. hand for the day. It's there. the experience, though, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. all a, it's it's an experience. Yeah. And you go you to use your phone, phone, then it's all sticky. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. So ice cream. <laughs> 59% of people and ice pops 41% of people. That's close enough. Yeah, it is. That's close <clears> enough. Yeah. Stephen, I have a good question for you. Mm. Would you rather take 1 million now in cash or flip a coin to get 100 million? I take the, the 1 million now. Would really? you? Yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah. Why? Um, <clears throat> 100 million is life changing. A million is probably not life changing. Yeah, but is it? I, I haven't that much left in my life to spend the 100 million, so I'll go, <laughs> go for the 1 million. Mm. Is the, yeah, that's a 
Good you could, could look at it that way, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. still. <laughs> what if you flipped it? You want it? It goes down to your family. That's generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what if you flipped it and you lost it? It's a valid, valid point. <laughs> you're in the same position you're in now, then, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but, uh, but you're not the one, aren't you? Not because you're like, I had a million. Yeah, I know. I, that's your million. Like, I just ready to say, yeah, I know. You have the chance to have a million. I know. I'd flip the coin, though. So would okay. I. Okay. But only because it's a hundred times more. Like, okay. if it was five million, I wouldn't flip the coin. Yeah. If it was 50, would you? Probably, yeah. Yeah, same, yeah. That's, as if, it's a big jump. Like, I'm not saying a million wouldn't change my life now. It would. I'd be able to buy a house. I mean, it's... Lo- probably have to do the house up and then that's it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way houses are these days. Yeah. I said it's it's not life changing. Obviously, it's life changing. I meant, like, you're not chef for life. Really. No, you'd still be walking. You'd still, like, you're not going to leave much to your family. I don't think you'd leave the house. So, but the time you buy the gap, you haven't got a euro. Yeah, well, you'd buy a house, you'd probably have to do the house up. Yeah. Those houses in my area are going about 500 grand, and then they need work done on top of that. Yeah. Right, so half of it is gone, just getting <coughs> the keys of the house. Work done on top of that. You'd probably get a new car, a decent holiday. Mm. And you'd be lucky to get the rest in jellies. Then you're going back up to collect the scratcher. Basically, yeah. So, yeah. I'd flip the coin. Okay. Yeah. I'm flipping as well. Well, I, I, I hope we end up with that problem. Yeah, it'd yeah. be a good predicament to be in, yeah, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, until you lose. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> you know, you know the risk. What was the oh bollocks? Isn't that the, the percentages? Um, right, the percentages of that. So seventy-one percent of people take the million because they're right. Yeah. It's a very logical thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and twenty-nine percent to flip well, the coin. All of us are idiots. Yeah, yeah give us that flipped. Times are hard, isn't it? Okay. That just goes to show it. Thirty euro left. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Stephen, you actually have a zinger for us. Yeah, well, as I say, when I listen to the 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 previous podcast, I thought, yeah, well, if the lads asked me for a zinger, I'd come up with one, I think. So what I thought of is, <clears throat> um, if you say, take the subject that you, you're most interested in, and it could be, you know, a school subject, it could be uh, something that you're interested in reading or studying or looking up or, or learning about. Say it could be music, could be history. I think one of you mentioned at one stage that you liked history on one of the podcasts. Um, so... Would you rather be a teacher or a student? That is a good one. In more sense, like what? Would you rather be teaching somebody, like you're starting MMA? Yeah. Would you rather be the one teaching MMA to people who have never done it before or be receiving the lesson? Oh, I think good I'd rather be the student. Right. I'd rather be the I'd rather be the student because I love I love when I know nothing about something and every day I like oh, that was lethal yeah and Jesus Christ we're only scratching the surface yeah There's, like it's everlasting like it's never ending the amount of learning you can do with something yeah you can always improve so I'd hate to be the one who basically knows it all mm. and is passing it down I wouldn't hate to be the one but I'd rather be the one on the other end I love I'd, learning I'd hate to try, yeah but imagine trying to get the message across and you see it's not going. Like they're not picking her up. And but then what about the ones when, it, when they do pick her up? Yeah. I just think back to when I was in school and imagine being a teacher and dealing with like 30 students or whatever it was at the time. And like, I'd hate to be in that position now. So I'd rather be the student yeah. all day. I agree with that because I remember when I was when I started playing music first, um, every new thing that I learned, the excitement, you know, and... Um, I ended up, you know, even even when I was 15 or 16 years old, always tried to play with bands that I could learn from older people. I ended up with playing people twice and three times my age and I would soak it in. 
all of the all of this stuff and it's really exciting to learn this stuff isn't it mm. so the student I, I agree with you it's a great thing by the way it is at first I was like what I didn't get it. The second you said, would you rather, I knew it was going to be a good singer. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was. The would you rather is a good singer. Yeah. Me and you actually don't even have a singer this week. How disappointing is that? I know. It's a busy week though. Yeah, we have a lot going on this week. Oh, I know. You get, you had to get measured for your suits. Yeah. We did indeed. Yeah. So we went in to collect the suits off Tiffany's earlier. Yeah. Fresh. Can't say anything about them just yet, but you'll see it's them secret. Friday night. They, they, they look good, but we they can't go into good. detail about how good they look. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, Live shows on Friday night. Yeah, so well, that's in, tomorrow night when this comes out. Yeah, so we're in Vicar Street, Friday nineteenth. Um, yeah, VR toured live show second time in Vicar Street. Um, I don't think it gets any easier to be honest. It <laughs> like, gets harder. Yeah, the nerves are there, the expectation is there, and it's just. I think that's what it is. I think the expectation. So I think the first two went well. Yeah. So now it's the like, bar is set, and you're just like oh, you have to meet her every time. Yeah, but I think the crowd nearly does half of the job for us. Yeah. Like, the crowd is just with you the whole way, no matter what. Like, we know, even if we came to a standstill and we literally forgot how to talk for five minutes, the whole crowd just starts singing or something. And like, laugh. we can never lose yeah. with the crowd, you know, yeah, that type crowd, of way. crowd are electric. How would you find performance, Stephen? Especially in, at the start. In, in Vicar Street. Well, in general. In general. Um, yeah, there was, you know, when you're young and you, you, you want to perform, you need, when you were a kid, you perform in front of the mirror. You think you're Elvis Presley. You're not, yeah. I'm not sure if you know who Elvis Presley was. Of course, I'm not that bleeding. <laughs> I think that his, young. Actually, I think it's his 45 years today since he died. But uh, that's, uh, Sorry to interrupt you. This has happened to us in a few episodes in the last few weeks. We'd bring up a topic just randomly yeah. and it'd be the anniversary of like yeah, something yeah, related yeah. to that topic. Yeah. Well, he, he, he was, you know, uh, not to go off on a tangent on you, that's, but I mean, Elvis Presley was so important. Having said that, it was also a sad story because, um, you know, what Elvis was doing with the singing, the, the rock and roll type material was, was done for years and by thousands of, of black yeah. of black artists, but because uh, the, the discrimination in America at the time that they, they wouldn't they wouldn't feature the black artists doing this type of thing. And uh, so they were looking for uh, for for white people or white white artists to do this type of thing because they knew the music was great. and um, and Elvis certainly, you know he was he was probably the greatest rock and roll voice, certainly the, one of the greatest pop voices of all time. So it was great that he was the one that actually took on this, doing this material. Um, and when you consider it, you know, the, the type of thing that, that influenced Elvis, um, also influenced uh, people, uh, the, the big, what we call the 60s revolution that happened in, in the 60s. I always say that for me, the 60s started on the 5th of October, 1962 when the Beatles released a song called Love Me Do and um, and these these songs uh, the, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Animals and all of these bands were heavily influenced by black music in America R&B which today you call sort of rap would be R&B yeah. and that but this was rhythm and blues going back at the, in, in the day it was sort of like rock and roll with a bit of an edge and um, because these great English artists, like the Rolling Stones in particular, maybe, uh, they actually were responsible for the black artists in America who were suppressed and were ignored getting becoming popular. 
So you had the likes of, you know, B.B. King and um, Howlin' Chuck Wolf Berry. and all of the Chuck Berry, exactly, people like that. So it's because of that revolution that, you know, that, that it happened for them. But sorry to go off on a tangent, but the minute you mention music like that, my head just fills yeah. and I'm 16 again, you know. Yeah. But remember, we had uh, Christy Diglam on a yeah. few weeks ago and he was saying it's the 60th anniversary of rock and roll. Remember he was saying this? Yeah. I know he said what what like sparked uh, rock and roll then? What was the birth of rock and roll? And Christy didn't know, but it was obviously that. So you said the 5th of October. Well, for, no, that wouldn't be the birth of rock and roll. That would be, for me, that was when the 60s started. For me, in 1963, I was, I, was, um, I was 12 years old. Yeah. So I hit the ground running for what they call, you know, the sick, what they call, people refer to as the 60s. And it was a revolution because up until then... <clears throat> Music was very, uh, and what you saw on the television and what you saw, or heard in the radio was was contrived music. There was, you know, there was a formula there, and uh, people stuck to the formula. You would have, you know, we've had some of the, some greatest artists, obviously, before that, and people like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and all of these great people who who would be influenced by the jazz thing and had a, a certain amount of freedom to do, you know, in their performance, but. In general, you would have had artists that had a big orchestral backing behind them and all that. So it was, it was very restricted. But when the Beatles came along, they broke all the rules. Um, things that people take for granted today, I mean, some of their first hits, when you consider one of, perhaps one of their big, big, really big first hits was a thing called She Loves You, uh, a famous Beatles song. And it opens with the chorus. You know, to go straight into a chorus, same thing. And that would be unusual. Uh, same thing with one of my favourite Beatles songs is uh, is a, a song called Help. That starts off with a chorus as well, so which is kind of unknown. So there was the whole revolution and it coincided then with the whole style thing. You lads were talking about cravats earlier on and wearing, you know, the... So if you were to walk down Chelsea, uh, Kings Road in Chelsea back in the 60s, which, which which I did when I went over there in the late 60s. And, you know, it was just just this full of amazing colour and amazing, uh, you know, it was, it was a whole revolution that was happening there. Just so the listeners are now, Stephen, you're actually uh, a bit of a musical icon in Ireland. Um, if you want to just give us a bit of background about who you are and uh, your musical background as well. So maybe starting well, off with the band even. Yeah, um, well, I sort of came to the, I, I'm known for being in a particular show band because of, of something that happened to uh, atrocity in 75. But uh, as I say, you know, I hit the ground running uh, when the whole 60 thing happened. So I was influenced by the, the what you call today rock groups, they were called beat groups at the time, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks and the, and particularly by the blues. I was interested in the blues uh, um, and I played, I played guitar for a little while, uh, and no matter what I did, I had a very good technique. I was able to fly around on the fretboard and stuff like that. But what I was playing was, I felt there was something wrong. I felt there was something missing in my playing. You know that it was, and uh, uh, so one day a neighbour knocked on the door. A young fella called Noel Kelly came up and he said that they had a little band called The Web, way ahead of their time. And um, uh, they were doing a lot of rhythm and blues and stuff like that. And he said they needed a bass player. And I didn't really know, you know, what what 
playing bass was about, you know, I didn't understand what it was. Just thought it was a like a guitar with four thick strings on it, you know. And uh, so I said to myself, you know, I'd give it a go. I wanted to be part of this sort of rock scene that was happening in the little town, South Tipperary, Carrigan Shore. So um, uh, I said, well, you know, I, sure, I'll join the band on bass, uh, but I don't have a bass guitar. And they said, well, our our bass player, our former bass player that's <laughs> leaving the band, a lad who had a, a particularly a memorable name, his name was Chelsea Power, which sounds like a rock star's name, doesn't it? I mean, Chelsea Power. Terence's cousin. I know you have a lot of family in Clomel as well. They don't temporarily down yeah. that neck of the woods. Probably my cousin. Well, I, think, <laughs> I, I think everybody in, in, in Waterford is called Power, aren't they? Uh, yeah, the, the so maybe you have a lot of cousins. <laughs> Loads of us down there. Um, and Chelsea had no real interest. I don't know what I, I don't know what his real name was, but they always called him Chelsea. Maybe he followed the football team or something. I don't know. But um, I remember they said, if you can, if you can get two pounds fifty, uh, this was the old money, which would be about I don't know about two euro fifty or something like that, whatever it was. Uh, we'll put the other two fifty in, and you can buy this bass, his bass guitar for a fiver. And. Uh, so I asked my dad, you know, can I have £2.50 for a bass guitar? My, my dad didn't know what a, a bass guitar was. You know, he was he loved music, he was classical, he loved classical music and Irish music. So, But he gave me the 250 which was a lot of money at the time. This is going back a long time now. But, um, so I went down and I remember Chelsea came to the door and handed me this bass guitar. It wasn't even in a case. And, uh, and the minute I handed him the fiver and got this thing in my hand, I felt like I was plugged into the universe. It was the most amazing feeling ever. You know, I just thought something happened and I, I ran home with it and I played it and played it. I didn't know what I was playing, you know, a sort of whole new experience and with the thick strings and I wasn't using the plectrum and, and I remember big blisters came up on my fingers and then the blisters burst and the, my fingers were bleeding. I kept on playing it. And when I'd sit down, I'd run home from school at lunchtime when everybody had their dinner at lunchtime instead of having it in the evening. But um, we'd, I'd run home from school and I'd have my lunch and I'd put it on the chair across the table just so that I could just look at this bass guitar. It was a real cheap one. You know, it was no, no more than a, like a, a plank with four strings on it and very hard to tune. And, but I loved it. And uh, I began to realize what, you know, what it did, what the function it played. It, it laid down the groove in the band because even you lads loved rap and all that type of thing. And a lot of this the stuff you hear on drum and bass, well, obviously the bass is such an important uh, foundation for all that. And uh, I realized what it, you know, what it did and I got better and better. And it was, the easiest thing I ever did in my life. I didn't even have to, after a while, I didn't even have to think about it. I just picked it up and played it. And then I kind of got a reputation uh, as being uh, a good bass player. Mm. And, you know, when you do something like that, or you find something that you can do, whether it's in sport or whether, you know, whether it's in music or whatever it is, you kind of get a little bit of pride in yourself. And, you know, you're not invisible anymore because most kids when they're growing up in school, they're invisible with the exception of a few maybe standout kids in the class who are good at sport or good at 
school or whatever it is, and they're the stars, and everybody else is a non-looker. And all of a sudden, uh, you become, you know, you've got something that you can you can be proud of. And uh, so my reputation grew. And uh, when I used to play at little um, sort of dances and gigs around, you know, tennis clubs and that type of thing would have the dances. And uh, even when I was going to school, when I was doing my leaving cert, I was, I was, I was out gigging the night before, you know, my parents were horrified. But uh, um, so, and then I, you know, my mother kind of talked me into getting a real job. So I went to... I went to 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 London after after the evening chart. I was young, I was seventeen, and and I told her I was going to get a real job in London. You know, I, I really intended to join the Beatles. You know, that was the, <laughs> my that was my ambition. Yeah, and you believe that when you're a kid. You know, you believe. You know, when they hear me, they're going to sack Paul McCartney and bring me in. You know, but of course, unless you have these dreams, it doesn't happen. You know, so. But I ended up playing with a lot of people and I got a real job. I was working at, at in the city, in the financial section of in insurance. And um, and I, I met a lot of people and I played every type of band. At one stage, I think I was playing with four or five bands at the same time, you know, different days in the week. And, and then the country boom, country western boom happened in Ireland and uh, everybody was getting well paid for it. So came back to Ireland and joined a country band all, all during that time, I was interested in playing, in playing jazz and blues and um, a lot of what people today might call prog rock, progressive rock, you know, mixture of jazz and that. But to earn a living, you had to play the type of music that people could dance to. And that's always been the case because Irish people love dancing. And this is why the um, show bands which had started about 1962, around the same time as the as the the revolution was happening in England with the music of the Beatles and all that, Irish bands began to get together and and they found that if they had a brass section, they could cover a much wider range of music. They could mm. cover a lot of the the soul music, the James Brown type stuff, and 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 a lot of the you know at the time Tom Jones, all that type of thing. So very versatile. The show bands were were very very good, and there was obviously then there would be a top tier of show bands as well. And uh, eventually, I started getting calls to join some of the bigger bands. And uh, in 1974, 1974, uh, the Miami Show Band, which was a huge band, they had been established in 1962, and they had broken up or they had split in '67. And uh, they did a very clever thing. The guys who left the band to form another great band called The Sands were replaced by young musicians who were on the beat scene, the rock scene in Dublin. They brought in this great singer called Fran O'Toole, a fabulous uh, world-class singer-songwriter. And uh, they brought in other guys, and Fran was also a great keyboard player. And so it was more a pop group than a show band at that stage. And um, they offered me a job in 1974. And um, they offered me the job as the lead guitar player and I had no interest in that. So I turned it down. And then the Miami came back to me and they offered me the job. It would have been May 1975. Um, and I joined, I joined that band and they were fabulous and it was like a 
great summer. It was for the next two months we, we were playing about six nights a week and huge crowds. You know, we we would do two thousand, two and a half thousand people every night. You know, it was just it was a, a whole different uh, level to anything that I had done before. You were like, the minute you joined, you were a pop star, you know, that type mm. of thing. But this was 75 and the troubles were, there was a lot of people dying, getting killed on both sides. And But bands were, you know, apparently immune to this. Nobody was going to. Were they like an escape kind of thing? Like, were they like the only sign of normality? You know what I mean? Like, once a band is playing, everything's going to be all right. Absolutely, Calvin. Yeah, that's that, that's what it was. The bands and there was a, a lot of show bands uh, used to play with, you know, north and south. And for that, for that period of time, you know, that couple of hours that they would play in a hall, say, especially in the north, sectarianism would be left outside the door. You know, people, Catholics and Protestants, or it was never about religion, but unionists and nationalists would come to, you know, young people would, went to into the dance halls and they'd be and enjoy the bands because like our band was made up of Catholics and Protestants from north and south you know and I didn't even know what religion the lads were and didn't care could, really couldn't didn't, care didn't less uh, and um, so you, you're absolutely right it was you know the bands were offering this short period of respite and in fact show bands are part of um, would be accepted by both traditions in the north as being part of their heritage which is a wonderful thing to say it just yeah. shows you the power of music and um, so we were there was this there are people who wanted to uh, wanted to to make the troubles as they say now make the make the troubles worse before they could make it better that's what they said that they do there was this plan hatched that if if they could frame a band as being terrorists, a band that everybody trusted and loved, then security would be tightened between the six counties and the and and the the republic, because at the time the IRA could they could maybe commit some atrocity in the north and. Once they were over the border, there was less security. Um, and they had an easier, you know, escape route. Uh, yeah. No, if you remember, at the time, there was there was loyalist paramilitary groups and there was uh, Republican paramilitary groups uh, operating in the north. And the loyalist paramilitary groups were working absolutely in collusion with the, uh, with, with the security forces because... There was a crossover. There were members of the security forces were also in loyalist paramilitary groups. Um, and so in order to strengthen, the, to, to, to maybe curtail the, the movements of the IRA, if, if they thought that they could force the Irish government to have more stringent security, stronger security on the border, then that they would curtail their movements. But the Irish local TDs around the border counties didn't really want to do that, not for any sinister purpose, but they didn't want to do it because normal life for people living in the, in the border counties, people would live close to the border and they would maybe 
walk or drive over uh, the border to get cheaper petrol or food or, you know, uh, cigarettes were cheaper in the north and that type of thing. So it was part of everyday life. And to try to restrict people and stop them and search them every time they walked 100 yards over the border or whatever, you know, would disrupt normal life. So the TDs didn't want to get involved in this type of thing. And um, so the plan was hatched then that if we make some pop group look as if they're as if they were their terrorists or working with terrorists, um, then that they that the Irish government would be forced to do that. And uh, they chose the Miami, the show band, to be the the patsies, the the ones that they were going to frame. Uh, so on, we were playing in the at the Galway races. I think it was on the Monday and Tuesday. I think it was Monday and Tuesday. Uh, <clears throat> in the last week in in July, nineteen seventy five, and uh, we did the two nights there. Normally, we'd have one night off in the week. Normally, it'd be maybe the Tuesday, but because we had played the Monday and Tuesday and the at the at at the Galway races, we were going to have the Thursday off. So, but in the meantime, we had to play the Wednesday night in a place called the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge, in County Down, just north of Newry. And um, we played the gig, and and uh, there were six of us in the band. And after the gig, our drummer Ray Miller. Uh, decided he was going to drive home to Antrim. He was from the north because we, ha- we had the Thursday off. He was going to go home to his family, uh, visit the family. And uh, so there was five of us on the way back home. We had a, a Volkswagen minibus for the personnel. We didn't travel with the gear. The gear travelled in a, a van ahead of us. And for some strange reason, um, the ladies in the ballroom, they, they asked us if we'd like something to eat. So we were delayed and the the gear van was gone just about five minutes before us, which was unusual. Normally we'd be gone before it, but we had the next night off. So we thought, yeah, we'd sit down and we were having a chat. And it was one of those unusual things. They were serving Irish stew. Uh, I always remember that and I've always had a big appetite. And a friend of myself said, you know what, you know what we'll have this. And uh, so we headed off then after that on the way home. We're about six miles from Newry, between Banbridge and Newry, and we're stopped at a roadblock. And normally, if you're stopped at a roadblock, you know, Brian McCoy, who our trumpet player, lovely man, he would just open the window, and uh, he always drove the personnel van. The, he'd open the, the window, and everybody knew knew the band. They certainly would have known Brian. He'd been in the band for a long time, that... You know, they'd maybe ask for an autograph or this, talking about you know, the UDR, security forces, not so much the English soldiers they wouldn't have known, but certainly the UDR, which was the largest regiment in the British Army, a lot of them would have been part-time soldiers. And um, <clears throat> But uh, on this occasion, they um, when they flagged us down, Brian opened the window thinking that this was going to happen or they might ask for a cassette or a record or something, you know and have a chat and say, you know, where were you playing tonight, that type of thing. But they told us to pull in off the road and uh, that we had to get out of the van, which was unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got out and they told us to put our hands on our heads at the 
at the side of the road. It's a bit of an adventure for me. I wasn't used to it, you know. I was the youngest. Well, I was the newest in the band. I was second youngest in the band. Uh, the lads in the band. There was a fabulous guitar player. We we, we struck up an instant uh, friendship. He was from Kimmage there. Um, mm. uh, uh, Tony Garrity, one of those rare geniuses, you know, a fabulous player and very funny lad. Uh, so Tony was uh, Tony was on guitar. With Des McAuley was on on saxophone and singer. Fran O'Toole, obviously. Fran was from Bray. And a very funny fella, very, very, uh, the girls loved Fran, you know, he used to, he used to uh, a pop star, you know, but a very, very witty and brilliant musician. And then there was Brian McCoy, the trumpet player, and I was, I was five of us, um, Brian, uh, Des, Fran, Tony, myself, and we had our hands on our heads and these soldiers were asking us questions. They were joking with us and, you know, saying, you know, bet you lads would rather be at home in bed than standing at the side of uh, of the road. And we were all relaxed and, yeah, um, just thinking nothing was, you know, there's no problem, no danger, anything like that. And when they're saying that, are they saying that in a malicious way? Or? No, they're... Um, they knew exactly what was going to happen. It's one of the terrible things, Terence. You know, you, if somebody knows that they're going to do something terrible and yet they're able to joke and laugh, you know, it's a kind of very sinister thing, you know. It's, it's evil. It's mm. evil, yeah, it is. Um, but we had no, no idea there's anything going to happen. So um, there was, uh, I noticed that at the back of a Volkswagen minibus, there's a little, the, because the engine is in the back, and it's because there's a flat front on them. You often see the hippie band, the hippies mm. in the 60s using these things. But And there's a little shelf up over the the engine. And you could open it sort of like a back window. And there was a shelf there. And the only thing we ever carried were our instruments. So was, well, certainly my guitar, my bass guitar, which was an unusual bass guitar. It was made from... Uh, it was it was transparent. You could see through. It was like glass. It was plexiglass, and um, it was called a Dan Armstrong. And then Tony's guitar, Tony Gertie had a Gibson three three five, a lovely cherry red Gibson. And so we would have carried both of those because we wouldn't give them to the roadies. The roadies were animals. Roadies don't look after guitars. You know they throw them like everything else. You know they throw them into the no, we had a great roadie, but we still wouldn't give him our guitars. And Des McAuley would put his sax, not regularly enough, not always, but you put the sax in, saxophone into the thing. So they were the three instruments. And I also, I, I also at the time, unusually enough, I used effects pedals uh, on the bass guitar, which is which was unusual. Usually guitar players use them, but I had a wah-wah pedal and a thing called an octavider, which separated the octaves and, gave it a distinct type of sound. So in a little brown, sort of like a school case. And they were the things that were in the back. And I heard the soldiers, when we had our hands on our heads, I heard the soldiers at the back of the van and they had opened that little little back, the, the window. And uh, I was worried about my guitar. And I'll tell you how I wasn't taking it that seriously, you know. I thought, like, 
been in the movies, you know. I mean, this is this is a uh, stop by soldiers and mm. you know, something to, to tell uh, my wife. We were only married exactly a year at the time, Anne and I. Um, um, and uh, it was something to tell her when I got home. You know, you know, we were stopped by soldiers. You never guessed this. You know, and they all had guns and mm. all this kind of thing. Was that British soldiers, soldiers there? The, um, well, at this stage, there was. We just saw the UDR, which would be made up up of of the um, of of people from the north, mm. the northern accents. Yeah. And when I heard them at the back, I took my hands down and walked back, which is a silly thing to do, really, especially with somebody pointing a gun at you. Mm. But uh, I saw no danger, and I just said to the the man, two men who were at the back, and they were opening my guitar case. I said. Can you can you be careful with that, please? I'll open it for you if you like. And I went to put my hand on it to open the case properly. And he hit my hand and he knocked knocked my hand down. And he pointed at the little case, the little school case with the effects pedals in it. And he said, what's in that? And I said, it's just effects pedals. And he said, are there any valuables in it? So I was surprised that he that maybe he thought the money from the gig was in that, but we didn't. We didn't have anything to do with the money. The roadie would have done that. I said no, and he punched me in the back and he knocked me back into line. And at the beginning, I was in the middle. There was you know there was uh, Fran and there was Tony and Fran were on my left and and Des and and or Brian and Des were on my right. But when he pushed me back into into line, I was now second. Uh, on on I was there was there was Des was closest to the van. He could actually touch the back of the van, and then I was there, and Brian was 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 beside on my left, and then this man arrived. Now whether he was there all along or whether he and we hadn't seen him, I wasn't sure. But he had a very posh English accent, and he was, and he was in charge. He took charge, and he asked. He started to talk to the other soldiers and asked them, you know what they were doing and one man said that he was taking their names and addresses and he told he changed the order he said no I want their names and dates of birth and things like that and uh, uh, Brian McCoy uh, nudged me because we had our hands on our heads so he was able to tip my elbow with his elbow and he said uh, don't worry Steve he said this is British Army what he meant was that we'd be away quickly there'd be more you know this was a professional soldier not a not yeah. a part-time like most of the UDR men were and uh, Desley on the other side again because I was the uh, the new guy and they were kind of trying to put me at ease worrying about my guitar he said don't worry he said the army's usually careful with with the equipment and um, so we were happy to see this British officer in charge because we thought we'd be away quickly and then what we didn't see was that there were two men Two soldiers were planting a bomb underneath the driver's seat. It was 10 pounds uh, of commercial explosive, like gelignite. Um, you know, this wouldn't be the homemade stuff that they we now read about. You know, this is stuff that they blow up quarries with and mountains, you know. Um, and the plan was that they would tell us we wouldn't know about this bomb and they would tell us, oh, thanks very much for your cooperation, off you go. You can imagine, you know, that these guys, knowing that this was going to happen, and they were still joking with us. Uh, and so 
uh, nobody would have known about about them stopping us. Uh, and we would have, the, the thing would have exploded. According to the forensics, it would have exploded maybe 10, 15 minutes afterwards when we're on our way down the road, perhaps in Newry or perhaps just over the border towards Dundalk. And we would have gone down in history as terrorists or as people who are carrying bombs for, for the IRA or... Um, and I often think about it, you know, my wife would have had to live the life of uh, the wife of a terrorist. My daughter would never be born. Um, Fran and, and, and Brian's wives, they would have been labelled as the wives of terrorists. The families would have been disgraced forever. And, and uh, the Irish government would have been forced by, you know, international opinion would have said, well, look, you can't trust anybody here. Seal the border. Don't let anybody search everybody. Uh, but fortunately or unfortunately, uh, how depending on how you look at it, while they were planting the bomb, these two unfortunate men who were planting this bomb, um, a man called Harris Boyle and another man called Wesley Somerville, um, this thing triggered and it blew them to pieces. And it... Uh, Complete, I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of the of the, the 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 van itself, but it was blown to pieces. It was, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget the 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 actual the sound of the of, of the bomb and the the intensity of it and the light. Uh, it was like living inside a red, like living inside a flame. This was, and everything went into slow motion, and I was lifted off the ground. It was like slow motion and the gunfire started immediately and I could hear the gunfire and I tried to run but my legs were off the ground and I remember my, my back was arched and they tell me I was shot while I was in the air um, and I was actually shot with what they call a dum-dum bullet which is an explosive bullet. It's it's designed it's hollowed out and it's designed so that it explodes on impact, and it shattered into sixteen pieces and did a lot of damage to my insides. It, it hit me just above the right hip, went up through my gut, uh, exploded in my gut, and then continued the rest of it continued traveling through my left lung, which collapsed, and then it came out under my left arm, and uh, it was like I was in slow motion. And I started to fall down through the, the, the ditch because at the side of the road, there was a field just at the side of the road, which was about three meters deep. And, and there was trees and bushes. And I remember falling down through the, the bushes and the trees. And I'd, I felt I could, I was aware of every single leaf, every single briar every part of that that I could count them that's how aware I was maybe it's an adrenaline I don't know and very very slowly and um, and then I hit the ground very hard and then two bodies fell on top of me it was two of our lads uh, and at this stage I was the only one who had been shot and they immediately picked themselves up and one of them which I now think was Brian, grabbed me under the arms and tried to drag me 
tried to drag me away from the the the, the hedge into the field. Um, and he uh, he was a Protestant lad dragging a Catholic lad, trying to drag him away from the. But I was a dead weight, and um, they. They shot Brian while while beside me, and they shot him in the head and hands and the back, and they killed him instantly. And he, so he was lying down beside me. I couldn't move, and I I pretended to be dead. And then I heard the other Fran and and Tony screaming. Uh, they caught them quite close to us, and they um gave them pretty bad deaths. Um, one of the abiding memories for me will always be the, the, the screaming of the lads, the, the the cursing, the obscenities, and the viciousness of the of the soldiers as they were killing them and, and kicking them then to make sure they were dead. Um, and they continued doing that for for a while and firing into dead bodies. And um, then it went quite, the shooting stopped. There was a lot of fire. A lot of, you know, the ditch was on fire. The, and uh, they came over and they kicked Brian, who's quite close to me. And uh, there were maybe one or two footsteps just away from me. And this man came over and he stood over me and I, I just stayed still. And... Uh, I was waiting for him to shoot me again. And, uh, you know, the dilemma is, you know, do I get up on my knees and beg him not to shoot? Or do I stay quiet and stay where I am? And I, my face was in the grass, you know, just stayed still. And somebody on the, maybe on the road shouted down, come on, those bastards are dead. I got them with dum-dums. And miraculously, this man just turned away and started to walk away from me. Uh, and I was still waiting. I, I kept saying to myself, the further he walks, the, you know, the less accurate he'll be if he shoots me. And I, I was determined not to move or to cry out. But he didn't shoot and he, he went away. Um, and then I heard uh, when, when they appeared to be gone, um, all of the ditch was on fire. And the other survivor, Des McAuley, was, uh, he, he had hid and they didn't see him. But he was in danger now of being burned alive because the fire was getting closer and closer to him. Uh, but they, they had gone at this stage, so he called out and he called Tony and Fran and Brian. There was no answer. And he called me and he said, uh, you know, and I answered him. I thought I answered pretty clear, but he tells me afterwards that I didn't, that I just groaned. Um... And he said he was going to go for help. So he got up onto the up onto the road, and uh, he says that there was a, was terrible carnage on the road. You can imagine the two men who had been killed were, and there was parts of them had been blown into the field as well. Um, and he was he was gone, and I was there for about forty five minutes, maybe an hour, before the because he got into Newry Police Station, which was about six miles away, and he reported it. The army 
and the police wouldn't come in because into the field because the bodies might have been booby trapped. That was often uh, the terrorists would would do that type of thing. So I was uh, it was a beautiful morning. It was about half two, quarter to three in the beautiful morning on the thirty first of July, and uh, I remember looking up at the at the sky, and it was about I think it was about a half moon, a little less than a half moon. I think, trying to figure out what had happened. You know, I couldn't work it out. I thought that maybe we had been caught in a crossfire. Maybe, you know, these soldiers had been attacked maybe by the IRA or somebody. This is what I was trying to think of, you know, because it never dawned on me that the people who were, you know, soldiers would, would, would do this to us. And um, so I remember thinking to myself, I'd, I, I felt, couldn't feel any blood, so I didn't think I was I was shot. I didn't realize I was shot, uh, and I was putting my hands around, you know, my shirt and my jeans, and couldn't feel any blood. And then I remembered the man saying that we had been shot with dum dums, and I thought a dum dum meant a blank bullet, because I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I'm I'm okay. And I remember kicking my. We, we used to wear these ridiculous. Uh, platform shoes I'm sure you might have seen them in the movies uh, and I remember tapping them together my feet together to see if I had my feet and uh, I was relieved that I had and then I count, put my fingers across my chest and I counted my fingers and I, and I could move them so it was very important to a guitar player you know, to a bass player <laughs> have your fingers and uh, move my neck I actually sat up I uh, found that difficult so I turned over and I got up on my knees and my stomach had been extended it was all my bleeding was internal all the damage was internal so there's no no bleeding outside that I could feel and um, so, um I, I stood up I tried to stand up I found that and then fell down again and I'd get on my knees, I'd stand up and I'd fall down. That went on for a while. <clears throat> so I decided to check out the other lads. Uh, so I crawled around on my stomach. Uh, and I always remember the, the smell of, of burning, burning blood. Uh, and I'd crawl around and I'd, I'd try to talk to them, I'd try to wake Brian and I thought Joe worked it. I said to myself, "He's been knocked out. He fell off the." I, I said to myself, "He, you know, when he fell down, he knocked himself out, which didn't make any sense. You know, of course, he was dead." But and I'd crawl around to the others and I'd tell them, "You know, Des has gone for help and he'll be back soon." And I'd crawl around again, and this went on for about, let's say, about forty-five minutes, best part of an hour. And eventually, then I heard these kind of you know, this nasal walkie-talkie type voices. Um, and I thought it was these fellas came back to finish the job. I, this is what was in my mind. But it was actually the police. And they had sent a helicopter, the army helicopter, I think, had come in and shone a light around to check. And uh, so I went over towards, I crawled over towards the, the, the ditch and I pulled myself up on a branch and I, tried to, I found it very difficult to breathe because my lung had collapsed. And um, 
So he said, I stood up when I heard these people go on and I thought, you know what? If they're coming back to, to, to finish the job, they're not going to shoot me on my knees, you know. But I'm going to stand up and, and, uh, and they shone a light in my face and I put my hands up and uh, the only thing I could think of saying was help. Yeah, you know, I was 24, as uh, as my mother used to say, I was 24 going on four. You know, one of these people, you know, had no sense, no responsibilities, just all I was interested in was music. So it's the first thing that came into my head. And I just said, help. And this man said, uh, we're the police, son. That's what he said, we're the police, son. And uh, so I went to move towards him and the field was, was sort of, it was uneven and I tripped and they caught me. And back in 1974, the whole macho thing, you know, you weren't supposed to be caught by two men, you know, that type of thing. And uh, so I sort of got back on my feet and they helped me over to not the side of the road that I had come down, but there was a little side road and there was a fence. And it was like a, a diamond shape, like in the wire fence. And they said, and there was an embankment then up onto the road and uh, they said, uh, we're going to lift you over this fence and there was a couple of ambulances up on the road. Uh, so I said, no, no, I'll, I'll climb over this myself. You can imagine, you know, the state I was in. I was insisting that I was going to climb over it. And um, of course, with these silly platforms, you wouldn't fit into the, the little diamond shapes, you know. I, had to, I gave up on that, so I allowed them to lift me over the fence and then they brought me up onto the embankment and they put me into an ambulance. And immediately there was a, the driver started to drive off and there was an orderly or a paramedic or whatever it was. The man was in the sitting beside me in the ambulance and he, he told me that I grabbed his leg, the calf of his leg, and I told him to stop immediately, that we had to wait for the lads. And um, always remember him, he said, no, don't worry about that. He said, we've got ambulance for all of you. You're all going to get your own ambulance. And they brought me to uh, Daisy Hill Hospital, where they patched me up. And within, I remember when they put me on the operating table, in, in Daisy Hill. Some of it, you know, it's almost comical when you look back on it because they put me on the on the operating table and um, they started to question me. They said, uh, they didn't know who we were. And you now whether these were people working in the hospital or whether they were police, I I'm not quite sure. And they said, uh, where are you from? And at the time, we had a house down in South Tipperary in Carrick and Sherwood that we had built. And uh, our neighbour who had built another one was um, had just joined the Garda Band. In, uh, he was a musician, great musician, Billy Byrne. And he had joined the Garda Band maybe six months before I had joined the Miami. And he had, and we left our houses in down there. And because we were based in Dublin, both of us, Billy had rented a house in Clondalkin. So he said, there's a big house, you know, why don't you and Anne come up and share it with Marie and myself? You know, it's a big house and we'll, you know, split the rent or whatever it was you know, at the time. So we were lucky that we were actually 
uh, we, were, we, were, we were living together at that stage and they were able to look after my wife Anne. She was only 21 at the time. And uh, so when the doctors or whoever it was that was questioning me said, you know, where are you from? I said, Clondalkin. And they thought I said, Dundalk, which would have been close to the border. Maybe, you know, it would have been used by, you know, quite, you know, maybe it was quite a Republican area. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so this man that asked me that said, why are we not surprised? I didn't know what they were talking about. So they thought we were, you know, people involved in some sort of an act of terrorism of some sort. And um, they said, what are you doing up here? And I said, we're playing. And I was, I thought they knew who we were. And, um, and this man cynically said to me, he said, uh, playing at what? I still couldn't figure out what he was getting at, you know. And uh, I said, playing music. And then there, somebody realized, you know what, this, this, is, this, is, this is the band that was playing, but this, this is the Miami show band. And all of a sudden then, you know, they started to, to, the job was to keep me alive. And they were great people. I remember just before they put me asleep, this nurse said, I'm going to cut off your jumper. I had uh, a black jeans and, um, and I had this, sort of crew neck jumper, uh, a blue jumper. I said, no, you're not. I only bought this last week. And I actually bought it, I think it was Duke Street or something, is that it was called there, just off Grafton Street. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, I said, no, you're, you're not going to cut that off. Um, I said, no, we've got to cut it off because they must have seen there was blood on either side. And I wouldn't let them cut it off. I put my hands down like that. And uh, so the, they had to, put my hands back and take it off. I just wouldn't let them do it. You know, I was concerned about the jumper. I woke up about, I don't know, maybe eight or nine hours afterwards. Uh, the first the first person I saw was my wife. I mean, she's particularly beautiful, always was. She was just a gorgeous looking girl and uh, just saw her standing there and she had been, you know, rushed up to up to Daisy Hill Hospital. Billy and his wife brought her up. As I say, we were very lucky that, you know, when they got word, mm. uh, and, uh, brought her up. And um, the minute they got there, Billy uh, said, you know, we're here, we're here to see Stephen Travers. This is his wife. And the man with the clipboard, the security man at Daisy Hill Hospital said, looked at the clipboard and he said, uh, uh, Travers Travers said, oh yeah, he's dead. That's what they told her. The min and she went to pass out, you know, it was just a young girl, not used to anything like that. Mm. And the Billy said, no, no, you should better check that again. We've been told that he's in theatre. He said, oh, yeah, sorry, my mistake. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's in theatre. And so when I woke up there, here she was, this beautiful girl, and just the tears rolling down her face. And the minute I saw her, I mean, to me, then was, you know, I'm going to live, you know, how could I possibly not live with, you know, uh, so I was determined and the people in Daisy Hill Hospital um, were just, the, they gave me back my faith in humanity, you know, they were just fabulous, they did everything for me and uh, I got to know the surgeon, Jimmy Blondell, uh, quite a famous surgeon because these people in, in Daisy Hill and in, 
you know, in the hospitals in Belfast as well, were the most experienced in the world in dealing with that type of trauma, bomb and shooting and all that kind of thing. And I got to know Jimmy afterwards. Um, and he was very sort of stern man. I remember when, when he was in the hospital, he had to be, you know. And he told me afterwards that I died twice on them and that the other people on the operating team that day said said to him, you know, look, he's gone, Jimmy, he's gone. Let him go. And he said, no, no, no. And he he told me he shouted at the anesthetist and he said, squeeze the aorta, man. He said, he said, we can get him back. And he did twice. So uh, just amazing people. We, you know, we don't value the, the these people enough until we have to, you know. But, mm. uh, so they're amazing people. And uh, that's basically what happened. That it affected my life forever. I thought I'd, afterwards I'd get my life back. And we, But, you know, you're always stuck with that. And no matter if, you know, you could play with any band you wanted to, but, um, or win the Eurovision Song Contest or whatever it is, but you're, this is things, the stigma is always going to be, you know, you're always going to be known for this particular thing, no matter how much you try. So the rest of my life has been, uh, certainly in the last few years, has been f fighting for justice, not just for ourselves, but also for all of the other people who are now uh, threatened. People, they're being threatened by this... Uh, this law that's that they're trying to pass in in Westminster, and they probably will pass it in some shape or form to deny them justice. And these would be Catholics and Protestants. It's not just not just Catholics. It's people from from that were impacted by uh, violence from all sides are being denied justice. So that's why I've dedicated my life now to to doing that. Our case was settled, if you can call it being settled. It was settled last December, but um. You know, some people said I should have just right off into the sunset now and enjoy myself, but I can't do that. Not until everybody gets justice. I've, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rest easy until they do. Hard story to listen to, Stephen. Um, you can see, obviously, I can imagine what it's like for you. I can't imagine what it's like for you to tell it and going to relive it, even though it was all those years ago. Like it, it is something that you will always have to live with. You don't just get over it. I don't think any time amount of time will help you get over something like that um, and then especially as you said you're constantly fighting for justice after it so it's constantly it's you can't write off and don't say it's not going to be easy for you so not only are you dealing with living with that and the, the trauma of that but you also have these court cases and stuff we were talking before we start recording about how kind of unbeknown to the younger generation the troubled was not just in the north, but in the south uh, of the border as well. And uh, we're talking about the Dublin bombings. Yeah. So in 1974, uh, there was a series of bombs detonated in Dublin and Monaghan as well then. Uh, I think it was an hour later. So you had said that if you were to stand on the top of Grafton Street with a clipboard and ask how many people do they know when Dublin was bombed, you'd probably get 99% no. Mm -hmm. um, just for anyone that's listening that isn't aware, Parnell Street, when the bombs was detonated in Parnell, detonated in Parnell Street and one was detonated then uh, just where Goynies is on Talbot Street and there's actually a monument on the top of Talbot Street facing uh, Conley Station to commemorate all the people that died there and uh, the reason why I brought this up is because the people who were involved in that were actually the people involved in your 
the incident yeah. on Yonai. Yeah, and the reason that, you know, that we talk about this and the reason that I'm here to talk about it is obviously there is, as you say, a whole generation there and perhaps two generations who wouldn't know that any of this happened. And it's important that we know our history. It's important that we know that we don't make the same mistakes as we did before. Um, that that working class people are being manipulated uh, by powerful people um, to hate each other. You know, I've often said that, you know, if you're brought up bounced on uh, some sectarian grandparents' knee and told to hate the person next door because they say different prayers to the same God. You know, this is this is how people are manipulated and how powerful people stay in, uh, stay powerful. Um, ordinary working class people have always been manipulated, have always been the cannon fodder for these, for, for, for these powerful people. Uh, and so... Education, education, and education are the three most important things that, that we can... So we can't afford not to know the mistakes of the past. We can't afford not to know our history. And sadly, and I've brought this up with a number of uh, politicians over the last few years in particular, because I'm part of an organization called TARP, Truth and Reconciliation Platform. And uh, you can see tarp.global, tarp.global. You can visit that and you see the work we do. And I've brought it up again and again that history is now an optional subject in a lot of, in a lot of uh, schools. And um, it's, you know, that's a dangerous thing. That's a dangerous thing because social media can rewrite history in a day, in 24 hours, some powerful person can can start saying things. As you can see yourself, whether it's Trump or Boris Johnson or any of these people, they can they can get millions and millions of people to believe what they say. And I remember um, getting a call one time from a very, very uh, good, decent politician called Gary Gannon, who's a, a Dublin politician. He was, at the time that Gary called us. He had been at a TARP event and we, we have these uh, TARP events. Uh, basically, we give people an opportunity to, to tell their stories because unlike me, you know, there, there's a lot of people whose stories aren't told. I mean, we've, you know, it's been a, a, an Emmy-nominated documentary on Netflix made, a, made about our story. So the whole world knows, knows our story at, at this stage. And there are other high-profile cases like maybe, you know, uh, Dublin Monaghan, Bloody, Bloody Sunday, Bloody Friday, uh, Oma, which the the, the, um, the anniversary was, was only yesterday, and Enniskillen. Any of these things, uh, these terrible atrocities, the Reavy brothers, three innocent lads murdered on the 6th of December 1976, and then the following, the following day then you had the, the terrible atrocity that's known as the Kingsmill Massacre. Um, all of these things, we so we give people an opportunity to tell these stories. But Gary Gannon got in touch, uh, and we knew Gary's work because he takes underprivileged at the time, he was taking underprivileged children, uh, and getting them into university. Uh, he was like he was working closely with Trinity College and other colleges. Um, so Gary said, "You know, there's a there's a parallel here." He said, "Radicalization, people, young people being radicalized into." into paramilitary groups and, and uh, being brainwashed. And there's a parallel with young people being radicalized into drugs, uh, uh, working with drugs gangs and that type of thing. 
He said, ultimately, the violence is the same that that that, that happens, and people should be aware of of you know the consequences of violence. And in TARP, we never ever lecture to anyone. We don't say to people, you know, we're here to tell you not to use violence. We're, we're, we don't say to somebody, you shouldn't use violence as a way to change society or as a political expedience. We don't say that. We just say, you know what, use violence if you want, but we're going to tell you the consequences. Because when I was growing up, and very often, as you see in movies today, or you see, you know, on the television or whatever, somebody gets shot and they put their hands up to their chest, close their eyes and drop down. That's not the way people usually die when they're shot. Mm. Now, there's massive trauma to the body itself is, you know, I've, I've crawled through body parts. I've crawled through uh, bits of people uh, around a blood-soaked field. I know what that's like. I know what the smell of burning flesh is because when, when somebody is, gets pumped with, uh, with, with bullets, the flesh actually cooks because the bullets are hot. So all of these things remain, uh, you know, a part of my memory. And consequently, I have PTSD. So, so uh, it's difficult for me all to stay focused all the time on what I think is real life. But so Gary said, you know, young people need to be, you know, need to be told the consequences of actual violence and how it feels, and not just for the person who is directly impacted, but also by, you know, the families and people who are left and bereaved, and you know, people who have to watch their children. Uh, um, deteriorate in front of them. Uh, so would you consider going into some of the schools in Dublin uh, and and just talking about the consequences, the real consequences of violence? So uh, Eugene Reevy, who's uh, one of the co-founders of TARP with me, Eugene's brothers were the three Reevy brothers that were murdered. And uh, he's an amazing man. He's gone to London today now to uh, to lobby in Westminster and stand out and make, and try to tell all of these Tory uh, MPs not to pass this law to deny people justice. Eugene is an amazing person, you know, he's one of my great heroes. And to work and to know somebody like that, we're very close. We're not just colleagues, we're friends. And Joe Campbell, whose father was a policeman, was shot as well and murdered. He's there today, as are the people who were murdered by the IRA in Birmingham. They're, they're, their loved ones, the Birmingham bombs, um, we had Michael D put on a put on a big reception for them when they came over because they're not being treated properly by their own government in the UK. Uh, the Lord Mayor of Dublin put on a, a big event for them as well, just to show them solidarity. And um, we had uh, uh, um, Rose Conway Walsh um, from Sinn Féin was actually at that. Good, decent people as well. So you had people cross party, Finn Fall, Finn Gael, Labour Greens, all of them at these events, you know, showing solidarity. And there's some great people in the government today yeah. as well. So we're trying to, and basically what we're trying to do is to say, you know what, this was unnecessary. But the first thing we have to do is is, is to talk to each other, dialogue. And as you can see in the documentary, the Netflix documentary, I sit down with uh, the UVF, one of the the, the paramilitary group that. That 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 shot me and murdered the lads. Uh, um, no, the particular man that I'm I'm talking to on that. A representative uh, uh, of them, though. Yeah, yeah, he's he's he's. Uh, <clears throat> that's a form of words, but yeah. And um, so, uh, without you know, without dialogue, how are we going to fix things? Yeah, because you know, 
I could never condone violence. I could never say that, but I understand when a momentum happens and when there's such a momentum that people can't say, you know, we're not going to stop for dialogue here. We're not going to, there's people being killed on both sides. There's terrible things happening. It's very difficult to sort of stand back from it all and, and say, but there, there have been great people, uh, you know, who had that sort of presence of mind. But I understand why the, why this thing happens. I understand how it happens, but it, it doesn't have to happen. So these are the lessons we have to learn from, from the past. Yeah. Look, I only watched a documentary recently. Mm. And um, of course, you'll always suffer with PTSD after an incident like that. But you said something really powerful in the documentary. And you said, you asked your wife if she thought you changed mm. after the attack. Mm. And she said to you, it was like learning to live with somebody new again. Like learning to love somebody new again. Yeah. Did you not feel that in yourself or? Um, funny enough that you say that, Terence. It's not something that I, I realize, but other people have picked up, people have picked up on that all over the world. I remember giving a talk in Phoenix in Arizona and that was, there was a, there was a young man stood up and he asked the same question, you know, no, you're, you don't see the changes in yourself. You, you know, if you have somebody there who can, you know, act as, as somebody, you need to be told this, don't you? You know, if you're, if, if, uh, and, and to become aware of it. But also then you have to accept the changes that happened. You have to accept that, you know, I remember when, when we, we did a project for the Department of Foreign Affairs where we actually filmed a lot of the people and, and put them on, on the TARP website um, telling their stories because, you know, they don't get, as I say, documentaries. So we were giving the people. And I was doing the editing on the filming. You know, so so I would have had to watch this maybe fifty times. Somebody talking about the trauma that that you know that happened to them, their children being killed, or their fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. I mean, uh, so while I was editing this, as I say, I had to watch it multiple times, and it began to it began to have an awful effect on me. But I didn't see that, and I needed somebody to say, "Only you know, you got to stand back from this," mm. and also. A friend of mine who had been very badly injured in Lock and Island, he said, you know, I think you need to see a psychologist. You need to see somebody to get some counseling yourself. And you're inclined to say, no, no, well, no, I'm fine. I can deal with this. But you can't. You can't deal with this. So I did see a, a psychologist. And this person was absolutely brilliant. And I'm so glad that I, that I did it. Mental health is is something that we should be aware of and melt mental illness. Uh, and it's something that, the, you know, whether it's the worry or the trauma that's, uh, that, that people experience because they can't get a place to live, that they can't get a house, that they can't get a mortgage, that they're being their fear of, of eviction. All of these things weigh so heavily on your mind that it is, they get a form of PTSD as well that you're terrified that you're going to be on the street or that you're going to have to move your family back in with your parents who are, you know, who are elderly, all of this type of thing. So, you know, I think that we should be aware. Sometimes we're inclined to think, you know, ah, look, let politicians, I, 
you know, I don't care about politics or I, you know, I'm not going to bother with that and they're all a bunch of gangsters and all this thing. You can't afford to do that. You must be aware. You must be. What you guys are doing here, you bring real life to people who don't really pay much attention to it in the first place in, uh, in many cases. But it's important because the mental health, the mental uh, well-being of, of, of millions of people around is suffering because the cost of living, the worry about paying the bills and the, mm. all of this type of thing is, is happening. So get involved in politics. Get involved in, and, and understand what it is that can make a difference to your life and whether it's physical trauma, mental trauma, mental health is something that we should be very aware of. Yeah. You also, you mentioned the word collusion earlier. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that term and then how it... Collusion is uh, is generally uh, meant to 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 explain uh, where you would have paramilitaries working with the with the force of so called law and order, but in effect, there wasn't really. It, it's 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 not the word that should be used because it, it, that implies that people that these two these would have had paramilitaries and the security forces just happened to get together and decide to do something. In reality, what it was was that the that the very very at the very very high level in the security forces, they were actually they got these people to to work for them, not with them. They were the ones who were conducting the orchestra. Mm-hmm. At the very highest level, collaborating would be about the one. It was more or less implying them to do it, you know, and 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 uh, because the man who is one of the center at the center of twenty of of of, let me see, about about one hundred and twenty murders is a man called Robin Jackson, Robert Jackson, but he's always known as Robin Jackson, and because they couldn't they couldn't talk about him. Uh, name him in the papers, they call him the Jackal. And this man was in involved in, we think, about 120, maybe 123 murders as part of the Glenan gang. This man was undoubtedly um, uh, uh, an agent uh, working for the for security forces. Now, people often say that, you know, he worked for, for the, the, the police, the RUC. In fact, he worked for, uh, for British military intelligence. MI5, was it? Yeah, and uh, there's there a lot of that is, uh, you know, it's this, um, it's quite complicated, but effectively is working for the government. Trained with them. Uh, and also when you look at the, you know, it's like dark matter, you say to yourself, well, I can't actually see it, but you know the effects of it. So this man is a man who who was able to evade, uh, he was he was warned off. And he was told, he was warned off by the by the police. He admitted himself that he should get out of the way because there was, as he said, a wee job he could be done for. That was the Miami incident. Uh, he was he was there on the on, uh, as the leader of the Glenan gang on the night uh, that we were there. He murdered. We believe he murdered Joe Campbell's father. He was uh, uh, which wasn't a Glenan case, but so he was uh, he was just brought in. He was their agent as a psychopathic murderer who was a dreadful character. Altogether, so um, collusion, yeah, it's, it's it's more than just people getting together and decide, you know what, we'll form a band here. It was, it was, this was a case of of these people being brought in to do a particular job. Mm-hmm. You said that um, you are walking to in Westminster to block this law being passed. What law is it that? Well, the British government have decided that uh, they don't want the um, security forces being. Um, 
uh, being brought into court uh, and, and uh, having to, you know, to answer for what they're being accused of. Now, a decent, there are a lot of decent British soldiers who served with dignity. There are a lot of decent, I know a lot of policemen, the policemen who investigated our case were good, honest policemen who were frustrated from the, you know, from by their superiors. We know, we know that. I've seen all of the evidence. But, and there are a lot of decent soldiers throughout the UK who say, this is shameful. You, you know, we fought for, uh, for, for, for law and order. Why deny people? But there are, you know, the politicians are saying, oh no, we want to protect our soldiers. Now there's a lot of soldiers don't want to go in because they have uh, questions to answer. But the reality is that the British government is not protecting its soldiers, it's protecting itself. Mm. Mm. Because they were the ones responsible. You know, they were the ones responsible for, for, for giving the orders and it went all the way up to the top. And it was a case of, in, in, in many instances, it was a case of, you know, uh, Maggie Thatcher basically said, you know what, you can do this, you can do that, but don't get caught. So rotten to the core. And, the, and of course, all sides have, have you know, were, nobody has clean hands to mm. come out of this, whether it's, whether it's loyalists, Republicans, uh, the, the security forces. Uh, so the, the obvious answer is that everybody, that they should just come out and tell the truth. But if they could, if they did tell the truth. Yeah, you're pulling out a thread. Yeah. It would, um, you, know, you wonder if it would collapse society. You know, because because people have are entrenched in their views, uh, and but I think ultimately what you have to do is the truth has to come out, and to you know stop stop covering it up. And we know in our case it was covered up for so long, and a lot of it is still is still covered up. Yeah, it's still redacted. When did you suspect that there was state involvement in the attack? I knew that there was state involvement from the from the very beginning because uh, on the our incident happened on the on the thirty first of July, and when they moved me, I began to get worried uh, when I was in the north, in hospital in the north, and I asked to be transferred down to down to Dublin. So when they eventually transferred me down, uh, about a little over a week, and they. They were worried that the journey would kill me, but uh, I was I was worried about being there because I was a witness, mm. and I remember being I was in hospital in in uh, Elm Park, which is St Vincent's Hospital, just opposite RTE. There, that's where they brought me. It was St Vincent's Nursing Home, I think it was called, or Elm Park Nursing Home, I think it was called, and uh, and the Miami management allowed uh, a reporter to come in. Um. And he was his name. He was an English reporter who worked for the uh, the Herald, the Evening Herald, which was an Irish paper at the time. And I gave an interview, and I mentioned the British soldier in the interview. So, and we have the cuttings from that newspaper. Mm. Uh, uh, and I clearly mentioned British Army, and yet the HET report, which is the Historical Inquiries team report, failed to acknowledge that, even though we showed them the clippings. So. Back as far as within a week, less than two weeks after the attack, I was mentioning that there was state involvement. 
But the strange thing was at the time, I didn't see it as sinister. I thought, you know, this was that there would have maybe been naturally along with the, with the UDR soldiers that there would have been either police or there would have been a uh, um, British army involvement or a British officer. So I didn't see, it was years and years afterwards that I realized that, you know, this was a serious, seriously compromised these people and that's why uh, they didn't want to acknowledge it and they keep on denying it all the time, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's really from the top down. It's from the top down, yeah. Like, it's, it's scary. Like, if you go back to your story as well, like, what actually, what actually happened like in your fight for justice then? Like, we, we, uh, back about ten years ago, just over ten years ago, there was a, there was a, a group set up called the Historical Inquiries Team, which was uh, British police were brought together to investigate what they call legacy legacy uh, um, incidents, crimes. And we were one of the, 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 the cases that they were examining. And when they gave their report, they concluded that uh, Jackson and uh, that there was, a, that basically that he was, a, people involved in ours were, were agents, were British agents working for, uh, for military intelligence and for perhaps police. And so we knew then that we had, you know, we had a case that we could take, uh, and we took the case thinking that this case would be, we basically took a case against the uh, chief constable of the PSNI, which would be the, you know, uh, before that would have been called the RUC, Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police, and against the MOD, the British Ministry of Defence. We took that case against them, thinking that it would, we were told that this would be done and dusted in about a year, 18 months. And they fought us tooth and nail all the way. Didn't want to go into court. First of all, they said that there was no case and that it was too long. And um, and uh, ten, almost ten years afterwards, we eventually got them into court, and they insisted on 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 settling this the the, the case. I didn't want to settle, but they told me that uh, you know the the other three people involved, Fran's wife and. Brian's wife and the other survivor that they wanted to settle and although there were four the cases were four separate cases um, they said that they wouldn't settle any unless all the cases were settled and I still didn't want and they offered us a settlement and the others wanted to take it and I said no so it's blackmail really yeah they yeah they uh, they kept it going I said no and then they because of this, they tried to introduce this law to stop all the cases then. Uh, and uh, I still said no, thinking that, you know, that it's impossible for these people to shut down legacy cases because it goes against all human rights cases, mm. you know, ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights, all of these things. Uh, you know, how could any civilized uh, government, any civilized country shut down access to the courts? And there's... You must remember, we're only one case of three over three thousand six hundred people were murdered, over forty thousand people like me were were injured, and then there are you know traumatized uh, families on both sides, mm. Catholics and Protestants. So yeah. It's terrible. So to to say to them, we're now going to deny you access to the courts is terrible. So last July, not July, it was July twenty one. Uh, uh, the British government announced this uh, that they were going to 
present this thing to, to Parliament that they were going to shut down all the cases, including cases that were already before the courts. And um, of course, there was a, a outrage by people, um, but all of the all of the uh, political parties, north and south, in this country and, and, and on the island of Ireland, everybody from you know our current government and all of the parties here and uh, the government, the parties in the government in the north, all opposed it. All said, "This is you can't do this because they all have constituents who have been yeah. impacted by this." Yeah. And uh, but the British government ha had, at that stage, a majority of 80 in, in, in the House of Commons. Now they have 79. And they said, no, we're going to pass this because we're going to you're going to protect our soldiers, which, of course, as I say, is just protect themselves. Yeah, that's mm. the thing, uh, isn't it? It's because yeah. they're dragging old men in for stuff that they don't. But they're coming back in the fences. I was only following orders. So where did you get the orders from? Yeah, it's the exactly. Higher up, so exactly. Yeah, we'll have and um, so... Uh, then they they withdrew the offer, uh, even though I had said no. They withdrew the offer, so it was academic. And then um, they they said that they were going to have this this law passed. It's basically, we often call it an amnesty, but in reality, it's a statute of limitations mm. that you've, you you know we're going to stop it. And then they said um, they knew then they weren't going to get it passed because it was opposition. Some opposition in the UK, certainly they would have had difficulty getting it through the House of Lords, the upper house. And uh, so um, they said our case was listed. One of the cases was listed for December the 13th of last year. And uh, it was Fran's wife's case. <coughs> and then uh, they included uh, Brian's wife's case in that as well. And eventually... They included our cases and they knew then that the game was up. So if they fought the case, that they would have been, you know, that all of the truth would have come out. And I wanted to fight it. And they offered us, again, they offered us a settlement money. And uh, the other three um, cases were, were keen to settle. Perhaps they wanted closure. They wanted to, you know, because yeah. we're, not, we're not young anymore. I still said no. And, uh, and then they told me, I was the only... I. I may have been the only one, I'm not sure, that, that didn't have um, legal aid. So, you know, if 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 there was a delay in the, they told me if there was a delay in the case, if there was an adjournment or perhaps, you know, an appeal or whatever, by the time we'd get into court again would be the end of 2022. And uh, that law could be passed then. And so nobody would get any yeah. closure, nobody would get any acknowledgement or compensation. But small as it was and so they were effectively blackmailing me into saying you know you, you're going to be responsible for stopping the others getting you know closure justice or whatever so I settled uh, on the 13th I wasn't happy but um, at least we know that because they paid out admitting to something yeah yeah mm. so it's been a long a long struggle and uh, I've been asked again, time and time again, you know, well, have you know, have you found peace? Well, I certainly haven't, because other people and other people haven't found peace. Other people haven't got their day in court, and because this is, you know, they're 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 telling them you're not going to get into court. No, they. I think they have to allow the people whose cases are already before the courts. They have to allow those to come through. I don't think they get away with that. But there are people, you know. 
innocent people on both sides, all sides, here in, in, in the Irish Republic, in the, in, the, in the North, clearly, and in the UK, that they're denying them justice. So how can, how can they call themselves civilised if they do that? A lifetime of trauma with no justice. Like. Yeah. So I hope your listeners, I know they're young and this is probably a difficult thing to, to hear, this type of testimony. I certainly didn't think that when I started playing that bass guitar, I paid a fiver for that. I was going to end up like this. I thought I was going to end up, you know, just playing music and seeing myself out as a, you know, as a, as a musician and that type of thing. And uh, I never thought I'd end up being, you know, somebody sitting here in front of a microphone talking about this type of thing. Never wanted to be that person. I never wanted wanted to even announce a song, never mind go, uh, you know, I just wanted to lay down the groove with the drummer and and and, and that was it. And, mm. and here I find myself in this strange position that I never wanted to be in, but I still find that I'm, I just, the, the three lads that were killed and the whole band, when I joined the Miami, they made me so welcome. I think that they would have done the same for me, you know, just just don't let them off the hook and shout for justice. And you owe it to the lads, like. Yeah, I owe it to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the documentary. It's the Miami Show band massacre. Massacre. It's it's still on Netflix now for anybody that actually wants to go and watch it. Um, yeah. Terms watched it recently, so did I. I watched it originally when it came out, um, and then I rewatched it then recently as well, yeah. just to rush up on it. But yeah. Um, Collusion is a big thing in the Troubles. It's a big, it's a big part of the Troubles. Um, but no matter which way you look at it, some people say it's sectarianism. Some some people say it's a, it's a political struggle or whatever. There's a lot of innocent people who were dragged into the Troubles, yeah. and against their will, obviously. And the hangover of that is left on the likes of yourself and your family, and there's plenty of other families, as you said, thousands, not just here but across the world as well in the UK. So it's a uh, it is a good topic to educate yourself on and understand what's going on so we don't see stuff like this happen again and with the way things are going especially up the north and with Brexit and stuff like that something is shifting so let's make sure that we're on the right course with history now and uh, we don't let it repeat of what we're just trying to get over happen again because uh, there will be a lot of unrest and upheaval because we are trying to form something new going forward I would like to, you know, to, to, that was one night that changed uh, my life. But being in a band like that was tremendous fun. It was, yeah, it was like, it was living the life, you know, for, for that couple of months before this thing happened, you know, can you imagine it? You know, you're, all of a sudden, you're like, it's like, you're, you're everything that you ever dreamed of, you know, that, uh, I remember some of the things that sort of that's true. First of all, I didn't have to pack my gear after a gig. You know, somebody else did it yeah. for me. Yeah. Somebody set my gear up, plugged the amp in. That's when you know you made it. Uh, yeah. How big was How big was it in Miami? On a, an ordinary Monday night in Dublin, for instance, there was a big, big uh, ballroom called, it was called uh, the TV Club at the top of Harcourt Street there. On an ordinary, just an average Monday night, we would put over 2,000 people into that on a, on a, on a, on a Monday night. Um, That's mental numbers, that. Mm. Like a Monday night, a yeah. band is on 2,000 people. 
and somebody could maybe put a marquee, a big tent up in the middle of nowhere and uh, uh, in some country place that, you know, uh, that maybe a village that of, of about 60 or 100 people and we would draw two and a half, three thousand people into the marquee from all over. From like, all over, yeah. Buses, mental. yeah. Is where yards like massive mega band. Or I remember we played. Uh, you wouldn't remember a band, but there was a big band, big international band called the Bay City Rollers. Back in the day, I mean, they were you know huge all over the world. And I remember, we, remember we went to uh, we. There used to be these things called uh, awards, awards nights, you know, Starlight Awards, Spotlight and Starlight with big, big magazine. And every year they'd have, you know, best band and best international band and best rock star and best singer and all this. I remember, you know, we would always get best band, best pop band, you know, and there'd be best country band. And I remember being at this event, it was held in Port Marnock in the country club when it was all one big open venue at the time. And uh, again, some of these names wouldn't mean anything, but the basic rollers were there and Van Morrison was there, uh, the Chieftains, Rory Gallagher, all of these, all getting their awards, you know. And uh, the Radio Luxembourg was big at the time. It was a pirate station and just to, it was every, all the young people listened to it. So Tony Prince was was the, a big DJ at the time. He was brought in to be the compere on the, on the show. And I remember they told us, you know, while well, you're getting the best, the best pop band, uh, favorite pop band, and and the favorite international pop band is going to be the Bay City Rollers, you know, who were like having number ones all over America, and they were from Scotland originally. And uh, we said, no, no, we're, we're, there's no way we're going to follow these guys. You know, you better put them on after us. And Tony Prince said, no, no, no. He said, we're going to put them on, and then you're the only band that 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 is capable of following. We said, we're not. We're an Irish band, you know, these guys are massive. And um, so he said, yeah, well, you have to do this. And this is the way, and the management says, yeah, you have to do it. So we were terrified, you know. The Bay City Rollers are going to be mobbed, you know. The crowd are going to go bananas when they see them. So the lads, I was talking to the Bay City Rollers before, before the, the thing, and they were all in their dressing room because uh, they weren't allowed out, you know. The, uh, <laughs> And uh, so this guy announced him on stage and basically Rose come out in there and the whole crowd goes crazy, you know, and, and they get their award from Tony Prince and all this. And then they trot back back on the into the dressing room. We said, how are we going to follow that, you know? So they said, and now for Ireland's favorite pop band, you know, so they brought us out. I'll never forget it. They attacked the stage, the young people, Jump! I was the, one of the biggest frights I've ever got in my life. <laughs> First time I've ever taken my guitar and thrown it over the drum kit to the roadie. I said, catch this because they're going to wreck it. Our suits were pulled off, so you better watch your new suits this year. <laughs> <laughs> they pulled off our jackets. They pulled. I was, I was terrified. I thought I was going to be killed. I mean, they loved, that's how big the band was, you know. So we actually, I remember the bass of the rollers saying, saying to us afterwards, you know, God, you guys were lucky to get away with your lives, you know, and this one. <laughs> and we were friends with them. And, you know, when we did, we did concerts afterwards and Les, who just the lead singer from the bass of the rollers, played with us. And so we, you know, this it was just a wonderful time. And it was, it was the show band era uh, was, it'll never be repeated again it was the most um 
It was, the, it, was the, it was the greatest era in, for live music Ireland has ever seen before or since because there were more professional musicians in full-time employment uh, than ever before or ever since. It was a huge industry. There was, uh, for such a small country, there was like oh, about 12 up to 15,000 people directly employed in it between the ballrooms and between the show bands and between the managers and people selling more equipment and uh, customizing vans and all. It was just a massive, massive industry. Look, yeah. Steve, we know we have to get you out here. Yeah, you know, if get you back down there. Catch a train. Yeah, catch a <laughs> train. Well, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, thanks very much for sharing your story. It'd be very easy for someone in your position to be like, look, you made a documentary about it. Go watch the documentary, but you actually come in here and done that. So thanks very much for that. Yeah, thanks, yeah, Tarn- really thanks, Terrence, and th- thanks, Calvin. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a, a great privilege to be able to talk to your audience. Yeah, well, thank we, you. We feel the same. Um, right, we wrap this up and get Stephen on the road. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's episode eighty-seven. Bob is next off. week. Yep. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. The hip knocker.